It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Get a load of this. Gawker is dead again. You know, at its peak, Gawker was just an obsession with the New York media world. And if the New York media world is obsessed with something, everybody has to be obsessed with it. I remember going up to New York one time to do a piece about, was it too mean? Why was it so popular? Do people really like gossip that much? But in 2016, it folded after that lawsuit brought by Hulk Hogan. A couple of years later, uh, the Bustle Group bought it for less than a million and a half dollars, bought the name at least, at a bankruptcy auction, and brought it back. But now comes word that, well, you know, in this difficult business environment, we have to prioritize. And so Gawker gone once again. I didn't read it much in its new incarnation. It, it may have been good. It may have not have been good. But I don't think it ever sort of broke through uh, to anything like what the old uh, Gawker had. Hope you had a good weekend. Uh, we covered the waterfront and the skies, I should say given the balloon story on Media Buzz and those segments. Many of those segments are up now. I didn't get a chance to watch much of the Grammys, but I watched just enough to know that Trevor Noah seemed like he was on a lot of pills, I say sarcastically, and he was particularly unfunny, I thought. I mean, he was just bouncing off the walls. He was so happy to be there and with all these great stars. It just kind of wore thin with me. Uh, Beyonce breaking the record for most Grammy Awards, her 32nd award, except she didn't win any of the top music prizes, and so it was kind of a mixed record. But look, 32 Grammys, you can't really complain, right? And Bonnie Raitt won Song of the Year, and she was so shocked that uh, she didn't know what to say. She won a Lifetime Achievement Award last year, but now um, taking the Song of the Year. So one of the most interesting things in print journalism, at least, is the by-play the competition, the elbowing that takes place between the Washington Post and the New York Times. And when one of those two newspapers either gets a scoop or has a a, a fresh take on something, the other reacts somehow, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. So let's just say if one of those papers were to... um, raised doubts about a politician. The second paper has a choice. They can say this is a BS story and ignore it. That doesn't usually happen. They can come back and try to do a better version of the story. Uh, New York Times is famous for this because it has a much broader reach than the Washington Post. Um, they, if the story is seen as negative, the other paper has the option of coming back and doing something that's more positive. Or vice versa, if the other story is seen as kind of a puff piece, you come back and you do something smarter. But anyway, I mean, it all is self-absorbed journalism, I know. But on Media Buzz yesterday, I, I did a segment, and I've talked about it on the podcast a few days ago, this Washington Post piece, very tough on Kamala Harris. Many Democrats, of course, most of them not courted by name, uh, really worried if she ends up running for president, that she just doesn't have the stuff, she doesn't have the charisma, she's awkward, uh, and on and on and on and on. So, today, the New York Times has its bounce-back piece. But clearly, the reporter went to 
Kamala's people and try to say, hey, look, they beat up on you pretty badly. You know, give us some positive stuff to work with. So here's a little bit of the Times piece. Kamala Harris was frustrated. The text of a speech she'd been given to deliver in Chicago was just another dreary scripted talk that said little of any consequence. As Air Force Two made its way to the Midwest over the summer, the vice president told her staff she wanted to say something more significant, more direct. She brandished a Rolling Stone magazine article uh, having to do with gender identity in the classroom and uh, a law to that, dealing with that question in Ron DeSantis's Florida. So, uh, you know, you can kind of see where this is going. They rewrote it, and she came in with a stinging uh, remarks uh, accusing the extremist so-called leaders in the Republican Party of taking away rights and freedoms. But even after that sort of positive buildup, the Times kind of ends up where the Post is. It says she has struggled to define her role much beyond her legacy of being the first woman and the first person of black and Asian descent, uh, to be the vice president of the United States. Her staff notes that she has made strides, emerging as a strong voice in an administration on abortion rights. She's positioned herself as a more visible advocate, giving a speech last week at the funeral of Tyree Nichols. And the vice presidency is supposed to be a supporting role, so she can't get too far out in front. Anyway, but then you get this. The painful reality for Harris is that in private conversations over the last few months, dozens of Democrats in the White House on Capitol Hill and around the nation said she had not risen to the challenge of proving herself a future leader of the party. Um, Even some Democrats whom her own advisors referred reporters to for supportive quotes confided privately that they had lost hope in her. So... You know, they kind of went to Kamala's people and said, hey, you know, take your best shot. And even some of the people, they said, oh, you ought to talk to so-and-so. She loves Kamala Harris. And it didn't quite work out that way. So, you know, it's a very good reporting effort, but it kind of circles around and ends up in the same spot, which is a lot of Democrats are hoping that Kamala Harris is not in a position, shall we say, to run for president. Story number one, everyone's still buzzing about the balloon. In fact, there's been few topics where just ordinary people who never talk about politics, you know, people like all civilians, um, have, have been, have wanted to talk about the balloon. And I, I was watching it during the week, thought the reaction was somewhat overblown. And then I got kind of pissed because, you know, in our endlessly partisan media, it immediately got reduced to, well, Biden should shoot it down. Why hasn't he shot it down? He's a wimp. He needs to shoot it down. Well, Biden needs to be careful because if he shoots it down, you know, it could be there could, could be unsafe consequences for people on the ground. Well, the hell with that. Uh, Donald Trump would have shot it down. Donald Trump says he would have shot it down. Biden should shoot it down. You know, everybody's an expert on everything. And um, the president is the one who has obviously access to more classified information than mere mortals or even podcasters um, who has to make these tough decisions. And it just got reduced to, you know, Biden was a wimp because he didn't shoot it down. Okay. Now we learn. So then on Saturday afternoon, as everybody on the planet now knows, a U.S. fighter jet with one missile did shoot out the plane, uh, excuse me, the balloon, uh, the spy craft, just as it passed off the South Carolina coast. So it would land in the water. Nobody would get hurt. 
and also you'd have a better chance of recovering it, the debris from it if it landed in the water and didn't, you know, explode on contact. So that meant, of course, you know, I was going to deal with it, and we did deal with it uh, yesterday. But what struck me was um, almost immediately after Biden did this, well, two things. One is people on the right, many, some Republicans, many conservatives, immediately switched their argument. Well, yeah, okay, he shot it down, but he should have shot it down sooner. I mean, what was he waiting for? He let this thing go over the whole continental U.S. So that was one reaction. The other reaction was there was days of international intrigue over this. I mean, this was a global story. How was the U.S. going to deal with China once Tony Blinken canceled his trip to Beijing? And yet Joe Biden, who could have, you know, uh, had a sort of a victory moment, set up with a podium, gave him a little bit of speech, and we will never waver in protecting the United States of America and so forth. Instead, you know, the non-flamboyant president, as I put it on the air, he's, he takes a question at a press gaggle with the, you can hear the helicopter blades going, or maybe it was the plane, I don't know, he was heading off to Camp David. And he spends about 30 seconds, and then he leaves. Like, he doesn't even try to declare victory. But what he did try to do is to say right away, when I was briefed on this, I ordered that the balloon be shot down on Wednesday. But, the president said, his military people advised him, and that's why you have a Pentagon, that that would be risky, that people on the ground could be hurt. Also, the Pentagon people advised him, that they were able to to monitor and to jam, by the way, the capabilities of this balloon as it drifted, you know, from the western part of the U.S. all the way over to the East Coast. So I don't really see what he lost other than maybe the macho bragging rights by waiting on the advice of military officials, and this is their job. But there's so much more here now because it turns out that over the last several years, the Pentagon says 20 to 30 of these Chinese spy balloons have been drifting around, gathering intelligence. Um, None of us knew anything about this. And in fact, the one thing that troubled me about the way Biden did handle it was the secrecy, because had it not been even at 60,000 feet, visible over Montana, and had Montana news organizations not then started doing stories about this thing in the sky, we might never have found out about it. And so the secrecy troubled me. Um, We also learned, and the Pentagon just put this on its website, it didn't, so it was not a leak to some friendly reporter, that this happened three times during the Trump administration, three times there was a Chinese spy balloon. And, you know, yeah, I don't know either why anyone uses balloons anymore, but obviously they've got spy satellites, we've got spy satellites, Russia has spy satellites. It's just part of the way the world does business. But there are certain things you can do. I guess you can get a little, a little more maneuverability with a balloon. Um, and it, was, it ended up being a dumb and clumsy thing by China. Nobody is buying its BS explanation about, oh, this was just to gather information on the weather or whatever crap they were saying. So here's Don Lemon. You know, he's now the CNN morning guy. He's not supposed to be the super 
opinionated anti-Republican guy on CNN, he says, I thought producers had smelling salts, this is this morning, on the side of the set for Republicans that came on like, oh my God, I mean, just hyperventilating about this. It is serious, but it happened in the Trump administration and they didn't discover it. Isn't that possibly a failure of the Donald Trump administration? Okay, so he goes right there. Well, what about the head of the Trump administration? The former president posts, the Chinese balloon situation is a disgrace, just like the Afghanistan horror show and everything else surrounding the grossly incompetent Biden administration. They're only good at cheating in elections and disinformation. Here we go again. And now they are putting out that a balloon was put up by China during the Trump administration. He talks about himself in the third person. In order to take the heat off the slow-moving Biden fools. China had too much respect for Trump, all caps, for this to have happened, and it never did just fake disinformation. Well, the Pentagon is offering to uh, do briefings for Trump administration people about the three times that the Defense Department says um, these balloons were used while he was in office. Now, is it possible that the President of the United States at the time was never briefed about this? I suppose it's possible. Um, was it, then it must not have been considered that much of a danger. Um, but by and large, um, great mystery... Movie to follow, but I just don't think it was as much of a threat to national security as as some people were saying. And, you know, it's odd when Donald Trump says, you know, we have to end the Ukraine war and I could do it tomorrow and Biden is bringing us to the brink of World War III. I guess for anybody who's been immersed in politics the last six years, it's not unusual. But given the previous 50 years, for a former president to criticize a current president. And look, he's allowed to do that, even on foreign policy, but to do it in a way uh, that heightens tensions while there is a crisis, whether it has to be about a balloon or whether it's about, uh, you know, Russia ratcheting up the stakes and possibly risking a nuclear confrontation, usually you would try to have some unity and not completely and totally undercut the administration that followed you, except that, you know, as we even see from this short statement where he talks about they're only good at cheating in elections, Donald Trump has never accepted the fact of Joe Biden's president, uh, even though he is now running for the White House a third time. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of that, apparently uh, many of you are not that excited about the 2024 matchup. Story two, Washington Post ABC News poll. President Biden, former President Trump, they, they drew a record number of votes in 2020, but according to the poll at this stage, which is obviously absurdly early, America not really excited about this rematch thing, if indeed that's what happens. Let's look at the numbers here. Among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, uh, the poll finds that 58% say they would prefer someone other than Biden as their nominee almost double the 31% who support Biden. Statistically unchanged since last September, and look at all the things that have happened since then. Among Republicans and Republican-leaning independents, 49% say they would prefer someone other than Trump as their nominee, compared to 44% who favor 
the former president. So relatively speaking, Trump is doing better with the 49% against him than Biden is doing with the 58% against him. And then it goes on. More than six in 10 Americans say they would be dissatisfied or angry if Biden were reelected. 56% say the same about Trump. Um, and then you get into the weeds of, you know, satisfied but not enthusiastic and so forth and so on. I remember when the Fox poll came out uh, a few days ago, and I've talked about this on Special Report, not this particular point, but I remember seeing the country is just in a sour mood. And I remember seeing this number jump out at me that 55% of Democrats in this Fox News poll are unhappy with the direction of the country. Now, I get it, but we just had the latest job numbers and we have the lowest unemployment rate since 1969, since the year that the U.S. landed men on the moon. That's how low unemployment is. So it always puzzles me why people are so pessimistic. Yes, there are other economic anxieties and inflation and all that, and I'm not minimizing any of that. And there's the border, and there's all kinds of other problems. So, but you would think, I mean, Joe Biden passed trillions of dollars in new spending, climate change, health care, infrastructure, and on and on passing parts of the Bernie left-wing agenda that even Bernie couldn't have imagined would pass, and 55% of his own party ain't happy with him? I, I Look, I mean, obviously some of this has to do with age. The president is 80 years old. Which brings me to this political piece on the DNC voting to change the calendar. By the way, when you're president of the United States, the DNC does what you want, and this is what Joe Biden wants. Now, there may be some wrinkles, but... The first contest will be, remember this is a year from now, February 3rd, South Carolina. Now, South Carolina not only is where Joe Biden saved his presidential candidacy, but it's a big, diverse state with a lot of African-American voters. And that was always the criticism for all of their charm of Iowa and New Hampshire going first, largely rural, predominantly white states. So under this new calendar... South Carolina is number one. Uh, I think it's three days later, number two, yeah, February 6th, New Hampshire and Nevada. So it's kind of a sop to New Hampshire because New Hampshire was always second, but New Hampshire was always the first primary state after the god-awful Iowa caucuses, which are just impenetrable, and I'm glad to see them not even be in the top five. As much as I like the people of Iowa and think they take it really seriously, the, the, the whole caucus system is a mess. Uh, But New New Hampshire would share that date three days later with Nevada, obviously a state with a heavy Latino population, then followed a week later by Georgia, and a week after that, uh, or two weeks after that, by Michigan. So, uh, you know, people in Iowa and New Hampshire saying, we can't go along with this because our state law requires and blah, blah, blah. But they can hold the primary. If the DNC wants to wield the stick, nobody else will come because they could be penalized delegates and that sort of thing. So this probably will hold. Um, and look, I mean, what, where is it written in granite that you have to have people traipsing around Iowa where the only people who are eligible to vote are those who show up 7 o'clock on a frigid night and go to a high school gym and spend two to three hours 
with their neighbors waiting to cast their votes. You know, I understand the caucus system has its defenders. It's obviously the most active and passionate people, but still, you know, voting for most people as you go, you stand in line for a little while, you vote, and then you go to work or you go home, take care of your kids, whatever you do. Caucuses are a little more complicated. Story three, George Santos. And believe it or not, there's a lot of new things to say about George Santos since we spoke on Friday. In fact, I had to keep updating the show as late as Sunday morning because, you know, there are all these things that come out that are just sort of funny or amusing. Like, why would George Santos, uh, who, by the way, 71% of Republicans in his district, according to a Newsday poll, want him to resign. For the Dems, it's like 80% plus something. So he doesn't even have much support in his district at this point. Why would he tell donors that he was a producer on the Spider-Man musical? And then a spokesman for the Spider-Man musical has said, well, we had a lot of problems, but fortunately we didn't have George Soros because he had nothing to do with it. The Spider-Man, after the dark, whatever it was called, it's the biggest flop in George in Broadway history. Lost about $60 million. There were injuries to actors. It was an absolute fiasco. Why would you pick that one? Why wouldn't you pick something that was a bit more successful? Anyway, more seriously, there was a guy, I talked about this a little bit on Friday, Derek Myers. He was a volunteer in the office for a couple days, and he was applying for a staff job. And he'd had, he'd been under investigation somewhere and, Basically, this was the interview where Santos was vetting him. But they, they spent a lot of time talking about where they get their Botox, and this guy goes back to Columbia to get his Botox because it's cheaper. Anyway, on this secretly recorded tape, and you know what's amazing is this guy, is, Myers, is just sort of joking about, well, <laughs> you know, of course I'm not taping you. And Santos says, well, yeah, of course you're not because you'd face the five to seven years in prison. But he was taping him, and he gave the audio to... Uh, uh, talking Points Memo, Josh Marshall's liberal site. But then, and this is the thing that happened basically late Saturday, is Myers files a complaint with the House Ethics Committee and says he was a victim of sexual harassment. And this guy already seems kind of weird. And he also, um, you might just question his credibility given that he was secretly taping somebody who he was assuring that he was not secretly taping. And other stuff in that tape is just like bizarro land to listen to. But he says that Santos invited him out to go to karaoke with him, grabbed his crotch, and Santos said, my husband's not home this week or this weekend or tonight or something like that. So now we have the prospect of a sexual harassment investigation. It just, you know, this guy just keeps stepping at it. It's not his fault that he was secretly taped by this character. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. I don't know if he did this thing or not. As I say, the credibility is in question. You know, an earlier boyfriend from some years ago has turned on Santos and said, he never even told me at the time that we had a relationship that he was married to a woman. They've since been divorced. Anyway, it's almost at the point of 
what else do you have to say about George Santos? Because he just keeps getting himself into deeper and deeper trouble and leaving aside the sexual harassment claim and leaving aside the tape and leaving aside Spider-Man and leaving aside uh, that he's accused that the FBI is looking into whether he absconded with that $3,000 meant to save the therapy dog of the disabled veteran. Leaving all that aside, there's also all this money that poured into Santos's campaign and his treasurer quit and you have to have a treasurer uh, for your political organization so Santos named a new one, and then that person came out and said, well, you can't put my name down. I didn't agree to this. So it is just one rolling S show. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, let me get to number four. Smart piece uh, by Paul Kane in the Washington Post about how House Republicans, who used to sort of just denigrate the lamestream media, are now engaging with said lamestream media. Um, you go to the Sunday shows, for example, and they looked over a lot of transcripts. And, you know, when Trump was president, like a lot of Republicans didn't want to go on these shows. They didn't want to, they didn't like or trust the mainstream media, or some of them didn't want to have to defend Trump on this or that controversy. But, for example, looking at a week ago Sunday, uh, Meet the Press, Congressman Jim Jordan, now a... Committee chairman, first appearance in four years. Um, on ABC's This Week, on Fox News Sunday, Congressman Michael Turner and Congressman Michael McCall, both uh, uh, prominent House Republicans with important positions, were on the air. And Kevin McCarthy sat down with Margaret Brennan on CBS's Face the Nation. And so... Also, James Comer, he's the guy who heads the oversight committee. He's, uh, he says he's, you know, he has invitations like every day of the week. He could appear on any Sunday or any day during the week. And so it's interesting, you know, I mean, of course these people should be put on. Of course news organizations, you know, maybe they couldn't get them in some instances. But of course news organizations need to put on the people who are running the house committee chairman, subcommittee chairman, or, or those who are just interesting. You don't have to have uh, such a title. And, but there was also this sort of should, there was this debate in the media. Should anybody who voted against certifying Joe Biden as president on January 6th, anybody who essentially was backing the notion that the 2020 election was stolen, should that person be even beyond the air, even if they held an important office, uh, or are you just sort of rewarding them? Or the, half the interview gets spent on, do you accept the results of the election? And, you know, they try to budge and, and so forth. And here's a, one last fascinating stat. So in 2021 and 2022, the five major Sunday shows, House Republicans did make 105 appearances. But... 45 of those appearances were by Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, anti-Trump Republicans who uh, uh, served on the January 6th committee and voted to impeach Trump and are now out of Congress. So they can turn around and say, yeah, what are you talking about? We put Republicans on. Look over here. 45. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Story number five. You know, the other day I took on a very long and complicated piece actually a series of pieces, 
by longtime New York Times investigative reporter Jeff Gerth in Columbia Journalism Review. And I said to you all, you know, uh, occasionally I'm going to take on something that is um, more complex, even for a podcast that runs the risk of getting into the weeds, but I will try to stay at a higher altitude and just see if I can use the luxury of time and people being interested enough to listen to Media Buzz Meter to sort of elevate the discussion. Well, I, I hope that was a good decision. I'm going to try it again now, and I'm going to look for other opportunities to try it again because you can't do this in a two-minute or three-minute spot on TV. I thought about, you know, I didn't have room as it turned out, but uh, I thought about, you know, trying to do the Columbia Journalism Review story, which, you know, stinging criticism including from Bob Woodward of himself and others, of the original handling of the Russiagate story by the media. But it's very hard to do on the air. So anyway, this is more of a think piece. It's in The Atlantic by Megan Garber. And she's talking about sort of the rise of entertainment as now almost eclipsing journalism. And what effect that is having on all of us. So Megan Garber writes, uh, if you're in this environment, it becomes difficult to process the facts of the world, except through entertainment. We become so accustomed to its heightened atmosphere that the plain old real version of things starts to seem dull by comparison. A weather app, she says, recently sent me a push notification offering to tell me about interesting storms. I didn't know I needed my storms to be interesting. Or consider an email I received from TurboTax. It informed me cheerily that we've pulled together this year's best tax moments and created your own personalized tax story. Here was the entertainment imperative at its most absurd. Even my Form 1040 comes with a highlight reel. Anyway, but then it gets much broader and talks about a lot of the um, movies we see on the streaming services. Or maybe they're not movies, but you know the equivalent of television series. Uh, history repeats itself versus tragedy, then as dramedy on HBO Max. Um, so look, as the Atlantic piece acknowledges, you know, producers have been making up stories kind of ripped from the headlines uh, for a very, very, very long time. Uh, part of the reason is it's easier to take some real story, dress it up, dramatize it, uh, and than thinking of something that's entirely new. So, for example, I remember talking about this at the time because I was really into this. The Netflix series Inventing Anna had to do with Anna Sorokin, who was also known as Anna Delvey. She's a Russian woman who pretended to be a German heiress. This is an absolute true story, um, exposed by New York Magazine a few years back in which, you know, she gets all these people to trust her, that she's got all this money coming in and lives this high lifestyle and goes until suddenly it all comes crashing down on her and then some of her friends turn on her. And it just, you know, it is, was very compelling. And I thought very well done by Netflix. And then I started, you know, immediately Googling, well, how much of this was true? And most of it was true, but at the beginning of every episode, it would say, this whole story is completely true, except for all the parts that are totally made up. <laughs> How's that for a disclaimer? 
But then if you watch this, you probably feel like you pretty much know what the story of Anna Sorokin was. And I just read she's going to be in something, I guess she's finally out of prison? Anyway. Um, so, if you look at some other series that she rattles off, not familiar with all these, We Crash, Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, The Dropout, um, they basically take history, uh, they embellish it to the point where it can't really be considered history at all, some of them are very well done. Some of them are very smart, according to this piece. But then you get to this. A series like The Crown provides a similar experience. We sit with the royal family in their bedrooms. We see them fighting. We see them weeping. This is a biopic about lives still being lived. So I remember, I didn't, watched The Crown, but I remember there being a huge uproar, understandably, in the UK about the, you know, admittedly fictional portrayal. I mean, obviously there are a lot of facts because they have to be recognizable as historical figures, whether you're talking about Elizabeth or um, talking about Charles, talking about Diana. And more recently, you know, we've been going through this with Harry and Meghan. And you can just tell that some of it is dramatized. They create these moments that they can't know whether or not this dialogue was actually spoken in the bedroom, whatever it is. But there was such an explosion in the UK that, that I think the filmmakers had to start putting some kind of disclaimer on it to say, no, 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 we're not serving this up to you as a factual or as close as we can get documentary. But how many people who saw The Crown now have a sort of an image in their minds of, you know, William, Kate, Harry, Meghan, you name it. And so I'm all for entertainment, and obviously there's an appetite for it, and that's all fine. And if the producers disclose, if it's trying to be factual, or if it's just based on a real event kind of thing, you know, then it's up to the viewers as they click around to decide what they like. But to me, the larger takeaway is... Wow, it's really true. You know, it, it changes people's perception, even subtly, if they invest a lot of hours watching this kind of fiction or semi-fiction. Or it's sort of like it needs a new uh, title. I guess docudrama is the closest that we've been able to come, and that word's been around a while. And so now there's one out uh, on Pamela Anderson. I just saw her promoting it. So it ranges from high to low and places in between. But I did want to share with you my thoughts about this because I do think uh, they are impactful in a way and change perceptions in a way that might not have been true 20 years ago or even 10 years ago because we all spend so much more time now spending our dollars on Prime Video and Hulu and HBO and Netflix and so on. And that has to mean something. When I further figure out what it is, I will let you know. Thank you for sharing this time with me. Hope you'll subscribe if you're not already getting this onto your phone, directly beamed to your inbox. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.